The Dockers fight back from a 31-point decimate against the GWS Giants. I review all of the bottom 10 AFL club seasons, and the Dockers host a home elimination final against the Western Bulldogs. I'm your host as always, and this is the Big Digs Podcast. Frio are set to break a seven-year finals drought when we take on the Western Bulldogs at Optus Stadium in just under two weeks' time. We could have locked in a top-four spot if it wasn't for an awful Sunday for Frio. Everything that could have gone wrong on Sunday went wrong. We needed Carlton to beat Collingwood, and the Blues didn't do so in the most heartbreaking way imaginable. They kicked like six behinds in the last quarter, which is ironic considering they lost the game by a point as well. Carlton just had so many opportunities early in that last quarter to put the final nail in the coffin, to seal the game, hit the showers, lock in a top eight spot and put Freo inside the top four. And similar to the Melbourne game a few weeks ago, they just couldn't do it. Charlie Curnow, who keep in mind is now going to win the Coleman medal, probably had the worst quarter of his life. Curnow takes a mark 30 metres out on a slight angle with 15 minutes left. And the most common thing to do would be to go back, take your 30 seconds and have the set shot. If he does that, he milks the clock down to just under 13 minutes. He kicks the goal, they're 31 points up and there's no way they can lose. Instead, he plays on instantly after he's already taken the mark and sprays the kick through for a behind. And then, later in the corner, Collingwood are charging back up. Curdo takes a mark 60 metres out. He spots Corey Durden just outside the 50 all on his own. Instead, he kicks to a 50-50 contest that Collingwood win and then slowly transition into the famous Jamie Elliott goal. And then, Corey Durden put in the exact same spot as Kurnow, 16 metres out, hugging towards the boundary line. Harry Mackay, last year's Coleman medalist and the left footer, is on the right side of the boundary line, completely on his own, and he's caught Darcy Moore sleeping. Keep in mind, they are one point behind and a draw is good enough to put Carlton in the finals. And instead of hitting Mackay, lay out on his own in the perfect spot for a left footer, he kicks into space with no Carlton players near it and the game's over. It's honestly incredible to see the way Carlton have choked their final spot. What were they? They were 8-2 and two at the start of the year and they've been in the top 8 for every single round this year other than the last. The more pain those Blues fans feel every day, the more I feel better about myself. I thrive off negativity, people. And I'm not even going to touch on the possibility of St Kilda beating Sydney because that was never going to happen in the first place. For Fremantle, Simon Sounds. Fremantle are in the top four tonight. They now watch and wait for two games to be played tomorrow to learn their fate. It was a nerve-wracking contest against GWS, but the Dockers just managed to get the job done by 20 points. 
going into the match, I always thought it was going to be a danger game. I was very confident that the Dockers would get the job done, but in saying that, it wouldn't be done without a fight. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. The Giants blew open the door in the first two quarters. The Giants got up to a lead of 31 points midway through the second quarter. And even with that margin, I still wasn't pushing the panic button just yet. I was still fairly confident Freya would find a way to get back into the contest. And with a sunny two honey special from Michael Walters, that's certainly what we did. I'll talk about individual performances later in the Winners VIP Lounge, but I think that game really showed off our professionalism and how far we've come as a football club. If that sort of game would have happened at the start of the year, we would have just thrown in the towel and given up by half-time. But even with being 31 points down, I was still confident that Freire would find a way to win. I never lost hope for a second, which is something I haven't been able to say about the Dockers since 2015. And before you knew it, the final siren sounded and the Dockers won. I think that last quarter, though, really just showed off how far we've come as a football club. David Mundy kicked another goal after the siren in the third quarter to put the Dockers up by a point. It was a goal-for-goal swing in that last quarter until Jordan Clark absolutely unloaded a bomb from 55 metres out. And the game was killed by Caleb Sarong, who is going to get the first mention in this week's Winners VIP Lounge. He gets the best on ground. In that first half where the Giants got up to that 31-point lead, Caleb Sarong was the only exceptional Docker playing good footy at that time. And even when the Dockers did fight back, Caleb Sarong was still the number one man for the whole game. And it was only fitting that he kicks the last goal of the game, effectively sealing the win for Frio. 32 disposals, 3 marks, 2 tackles, 11 clearances, and a goal like I just mentioned before. Sarong fought every tooth and nail as soon as the ball bounced at the start of the first quarter. And just continues to shine through and impress the entire AFL as he showcases why he is one of the best young midfielders going around in the competition. The runner-up is going to be given to Will Brody. I mean, what more can be said about this guy's season at the Dockers? Without a question, the biggest improver throughout the competition this year. Huge pickup on the behalf of Peter Bell. One goal, 30 disposals, 7 tackles, 5 clearances, 3 marks and 117 AFL fantasy points the most on the ground throughout the day. Not enough can be said about the season that Will Brody is having so far. He's completely changed the dynamic of our midfield and the playing role of Nat 5 throughout the course of the season and has become a C-ball, get-ball monster. He's ranked 10th for the most contested possessions this year of any player in the AFL, currently sitting on 267. Ahead of names like Marcus Bontempelli, Jack Viney, Travis Boak, Luke Parker, and last year's Brownlow medalist, Ollie Wines. I thought Will Brody's first five to ten minutes in that first quarter was enormous for the Dockers, and he combined beautifully with Sarong in the second half to bring the Dockers back in front. The Freo hero of this week is the 200 man himself, Michael Sonny Walters. Sun, sun, tun, tun, or sunny two honey, whatever you want to call it, Walters was certainly on in this game. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the most goals he's kicked in a game since 2019, back when Ross Lyon was the coach. Three goals, 14 disposals, two marks, four tackles, and two clearances, alongside six score involvements as well. He kicked two goals in the Western Derby a few weeks ago as well, so Walters is certainly finding his feet at the right time before the final series. And he is my Frio hero for this week. And we're going to jump into the three key takeaways with the first one I mentioned briefly in the episode a few moments ago, the Dockers have a new sense of professionalism. 
I already touched on it briefly earlier, but the best way I can explain it to you, think about Geelong and their professional attitude. Not that it's anywhere near the same level as the Dockers, but regardless of how impossible the task might seem, whether they're 30 plus 40 points down, everybody expects them to fight back since they're such a professional output. Freo are sort of beginning to build that reputation around the football club and their performance. Because, again, we were 31 points down, and that's a huge turnaround. And to be at that sort of stage and still have the mentality that we're probably going to win just shows how far we've come as a professional football club. The second takeaway is that key players are starting to find form right before the final series. I already mentioned Walters, but him and Sarong probably had their best games for the season. Jordan Clark definitely had one of his better games. And overall, players that have just really gone missing in the past month or so are starting to put together some really good form before the final series. And plus, when you already have guys like Brayshaw, Brody, Brennan Cox and James Aish, who have been some of our more consistent players throughout the season, it's a really imposing outfit when combined together. And as we've shown throughout the year, our best footy is capable of beating anyone. And the final key takeaway, what do you do with Nat Fife? How do you prepare him for his first finals game as captain? There was a little bit of debate that he might be put back in the waffle just to get his confidence up. However, JL confirmed a couple of days ago that that isn't going to happen, with JL being confident that they can get some specific work into him over the next two weeks. But what sort of position do you do give Nat Five when he is playing? Do you isolate him as a third key forward? Or do you give him that sort of Dustin Martin role as Nick Rewalt suggests? And also, the availability of Lob, Logue, and Tabana will also play into this decision. Personally, as of now, I'd have him playing as that isolated third key forward. I think he's extremely lacking on confidence, and his body is way too banged up to be spending any sort of time in the midfield right now. But if him, Logue, and the other key forwards are fit and ready by the time the finals, I'd want him playing that Dustin Martin role, where he spends 50% of his time in the midfield and 50 up forward. Especially against a team like the Western Bulldogs that is just so stacked of midfielders. And when you have a fit in firing Nat Fife alongside Will Brody and Caleb Sarong, who are also really good contested footballers, it's a scary output for any opposition. But the decision really just comes down to how fit Nat Fife is. And now we're going to move along to the season review of all the 10 clubs that didn't make the final series. And starting from the very bottom of the ladder and the wooden spooners of 2022, we have the North Melbourne Football Club. I did expect North to actually go up the ladder this year, all the way up to 15th, but that's obviously not what happened. At some point of the year, I think they were tracking to be probably the worst team in AFL history in terms of percentage. And ladies and gentlemen, what is the answer when your team is underperforming? Easy, you sack the coach, and that's certainly what North did. Out the door goes David Noble, and then they proceed to beat Richmond the week after he's been sacked. But that doesn't take away from the fact that they were very, very bad this year in North Melbourne. Statistically, they were actually worse than they were in 2021, which is another year they finished on the bottom of the ladder. Two consecutive years at the bottom of the ladder does not help any football club. And it's really disappointing to say that the best thing that happened to North Melbourne this year actually happened off-field rather than on. Alistair Clarkson putting pen to paper on a five-year deal. It's an enormous signing and one that surely gives Roos fans the hope they've been crying out for in recent years. It's just the whole breath of fresh air to bring in probably the most prestige coach the game has ever seen to a club that many people thought had no hope during the middle part of the season. 
it proves that no matter what stage your club is in, you are capable of bringing in someone from a higher honour, like Alistair Clarkson, literally the best coach that we've seen this century. And also the huge improvement of Luke Davis-Uniac. Genuinely, the only good thing that happened on field for North Melbourne this year. He looks like a prime midfielder that's ready to explode next year. And also, the return of Ben Cunnington was just an amazing touch. One of the many feel-good stories in 2022. But that doesn't change the fact that they've somehow become a worse side than they were in 2021 when they had already won the wooden spoon. And I think this really peaked with the handling of Jason Horde Francis. His arrival as the number one draft pick did not go to plan. Billed as a ready-made midfielder after starring in the San Afel, the 19-year-old instead struggled as he learned the ropes of an environment that didn't seem to fit him. And instead of being the shining light that he was supposed to be in 2022, he became a feast for the AFL media for his on-field outbursts. And the fact that he may be coming home to Adelaide before even beginning to develop at North is a true ode to the development of the North Melbourne staff. And I grade North Melbourne's 2022 AFL season as an F. And now moving on to 17th for a team that I cannot wait to start talking about, the West Coast Eagles. They were as uncompetitive in a year as we've seen in the 18-team era. Those including the expansion clubs, by the way. At the start of the year, it was the injuries and the COVID issues and all of that. But once the players started getting back and the on-field performances got worse, that's when the red flags really started going off. It was simply put a season from hell that I enjoyed every single second of. I did not feel any sort of sympathy at all towards the West Coast Eagles as they endured the worst season of their club's nearly 30-year history. Admittedly, there were a couple of good things that happened to West Coast this year though. And without a question, it peaked at Josh Kennedy's last game. I mean, the guy kicked eight goals in his last game. What is there more to say? And also, yeah, Tom Brass definitely deserved a spot in the All-Australian team. I could never see him being selected over Sam Taylor or Stephen May. But I mean, he definitely deserved a spot on the bench. But nonetheless, this was a fluke of a season for West Coast and one to certainly forget. And one that I definitely won't be forgetting anytime soon. West Coast, you get an F-plus for being slightly better than North Melbourne. Congratulations. It was not a big, big sound to be for GWS as they finished 16th on the ladder this year. I had them finishing 5th, so yeah, I was definitely wrong. Going into the season, it was either GWS are going to fly up the ladder this year or completely plummet to the bottom of the ladder. And I thought they were going to go up, but they ended up doing the exact opposite. Just like any other club that doesn't live up to the expectations of their season, they sacked the coach and Leon Cameron was gone. And the new appointed head coach is Adam Kingsley? I literally did not know he was even an option for GWS until they appointed him head coach. I thought it was either going to be Adam Uze or Mark McVeigh, but ironically colour me orange because I was wrong. But still, they definitely dropped the ball in 2022. It was the Giants' worst season since 2014. And overall, they were such a boring club to watch. I literally can't even remember the last time someone was excited to watch a GWS game. And this applied with the fact that they're definitely losing Tim Taranto and maybe Jacob Holfer is much more sorrow. And the guys that are taking up most of their salary cap either had disappointed seasons or literally could not even play. So yeah, overall just a really depressing year for GWS fans, if they are even any. 
However, I'll end this review on a positive note though. Sam Taylor is an absolute gun, genuinely one of the most underrated players throughout the last few years of the competition, and it's so satisfying to finally see him earn that All-Australian blazer. I did say last week in the GWS preview that he was going to be a problem, and sure enough, he absolutely dominated Freo. But that aside, such a meh year for the Orange team. Seriously though, how sad is that? The only relevant thing they ever did in 2022 was get called the Orange team by Kelly Underwood. Actually, that's a good summation of GWS's season. I give the Orange team a season grade of F. Now moving on to a team that was definitely far more interesting, but not in the way you imagine. The Essendon Bombers, in their 150th year as a football club, finished 15th on the AFL ladder. Huh, ironic. Anyway, this team blows. Huh, get it, because they're Bombers. Bad puns aside, this team sucks. I have genuinely never been more disappointed over a team that I don't even support quite like the Essendon Bombers this year. Seriously, everything was written in stone. The Bombers played an exciting brand of footy as they made the top eight with their new coach Ben Rutten last year as they look to win a final for the first time in 18 years in their 150th year as a football club. And, uh... Let me recap. The coach has been sacked. The captain looks set to leave. The president has resigned. And most of the board has quit. And by the way, this has happened in the past week. This hasn't happened throughout the season. No, 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 no. This has all happened within the span of six days. They have entered a crisis, the Bombers. And looking back on it, I can't believe I had the Bombers sixth at the start of the season. But at the same time, I did successfully predict the breakout season of 2 meter Peter. I said that he'd kick more than 50 goals by the end of the season, and sure enough, he ended up kicking 53. And the Bombers did manage to get a good moment every now and again. And Michael Hurley had a really special moment kicking a goal in his last game for the Bombers. And everybody loved the Bombers' 150th game celebration. But their season was nothing short from a disaster. When Ben Rutten was appointed way back when, he said the Bombers wanted to become one of the best defensive teams in the competition. And we sit here two years later with the Bombers being the worst defensive team in the competition. Yes, even worse than North Melbourne. The whole season just differed on would the Bombers pull up an upset win or get absolutely smashed. Like, I'm sitting here right now and the only time throughout the whole year I can remember Essendon being in a close game was the Jamie Elliott goal after the siren. And at the conclusion of this year, I am nearly 18 years old and I have never experienced Essendon win a final. Even though on paper GWS and the Bombers had very similar seasons, I'm giving the Bombers an F- simply because of how disarray the club is less than a week after their final game of 2022. So, yeah, in the Bombers' 150th anniversary, they finished 15th on the ladder and are getting a big old F. 2023? Be better, seriously. Now for a team that was completely unpredictable onto a team that was completely predictable. The 14th placed Adelaide Crows. They finished 14th, and I predicted they'd finish 14th. I mean, <sighs> dude, what else can I say? Keep in mind, I don't hate Adelaide or anything. God, no, I actually really love Adelaide, but they're just so bland and predictable. Like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the unpredictability of Adelaide is somehow predictable. They cause some upsets every now and again, get on a nice good winning streak before eventually going on a really long, long losing streak. Like, it's been that ever since the 2017 Grand Final. 
And to be fair, that's probably the only real negative to happen on-field to the Crows. There were definitely some off-field issues, don't get me wrong. They certainly had their ups and downs, but none of them were really significant in any sort of way. Josh Rochelle in the first half, Sam Berry and Rory Led had absolutely amazing seasons. And if the All-Australian did have a sub, Rory Led 100% deserved a spot on the list. And I guess Riley Philthorpe did have a really down season, especially compared to his first. But again, none of these problems are really significant in any sort of way. They're a young, rebuilding group that's starting to show a lot of promising signs. And I mean, they are going to get Isaac Rankin, which is a huge plus. But at the same time, they could have had Tyson Stengel if they were a little bit more patient. But all that aside, I liked the Crows. They had a solid season and they showed a lot of promise. The Crows get a B- for the 2022 season. Let's just hope it doesn't fall apart from here. I gotta admit, for a team that finished 13th, Hawthorne had one of the best 8-win seasons I have ever watched. I mean, at the conclusion of last year, the whole club was a mess. I had Hawthorne 18th in my season predictions, but just like the rest of the competition, I was pleasantly surprised. Despite their talentless list, Hawthorne actually showed a lot of promise this year. Granted, they couldn't put it together every week and had some forgettable performances against St. Kilda, Gold Coast and Richmond, but there was enough there for Hawks fans to be encouraged. Again, despite a 13th place finish, they beat Geelong, Brisbane and had narrow losses against Carlton, Melbourne, Collingwood and Fremantle. But at the same time, they were also really inconsistent. And if their round 22 loss to Richmond is anything to go by, they have a really long way up from here. But I think what was most important for Hawthorne fans is that they finally got to see their young core rise to the top. Mitch Lewis is actually one of my favourite young key forwards going around. Dylan Moore was inarguably All-Australian contention halfway through the season. Enjoy Newcomb is just a bona fide star. And he's pretty much the only bona fide midfielder in the Hawks because the rest of that core group is not really solid. They're probably the worst midfield in the competition by a long way. And this is despite having Jager, O'Meara, Chad Wingard occasionally, a Brownlow medalist in Tom Mitchell, and one of the best young midfielders going around in Jai Newcomb. But if they really want to improve, they're going to have to search for a midfielder in the trade period. Who knows, maybe the answer is someone like a Tim Taranto or Jacob Hopper. But again, those guys are very similar to what Hawthorne already have, so... It really comes down to would they want an oversupply of the same midfielder. Overall, I feel like Sam Mitchell had a really good first year as coach. Nothing too special, but nothing horrific at the same time. I'm feeling a solid C-plus for Hawthorne's 2022 season. Baby, I get to talk about the Gold Coast Suns. Hell yeah! If you've been following me since the start of the year, you'll know that one of the nine things I wanted to see out of 2022 is see Gold Coast become a really good football club. And sure enough, that's what they did. Kind of. Let's be honest right now. The Gold Coast Suns are not a good football club. They've been unsuccessful for the better part of 12 years and have still yet to make a final series. But with that being said, I think 2022 was possibly their best season yet and a really good step in the right direction. The year started with Ben King, their most promising young player, basically set to leave the Gold Coast. And the odds of this happening were increased dramatically with his season-ending injury before the season had even started. 
But in a really surprising move, Ben King actually committed to the Gold Coast and wanted to be a part of that club. And alongside that, Levi Casbolt and Marby Old Show actually ended up being one of the better key forward combinations in the entire competition. Marby Old Show ended up kicking 44 goals, which who could have predicted that? Alongside that, Jared Witts has become the best ruckman in the competition this season. Yes, I just said that, you can't change my mind. Took Miller made the All-Australian team and could possibly win the Brownlow. Matt Rowell starting to get into his best self. And Noah Anderson is possibly the most underrated midfielder going around in the competition. Seriously, this guy's an absolute gun. Jake Lacocious has one of the most lethal legs going around. And Ben's Ainsworth is possibly the league's hardest working small forward. And the highlight reel, Isaac Rankin, who unfortunately requested a trade to the Crows a few days ago. But the Suns probably have the most likeable list in the competition. They've just got so many young players and it's impossible not to get behind them. They're the real underdogs of the AFL. And it's because of the Suns missing those said players during the last rounds of the year that really costed them a final spot. All of that while also managing to re-sign Stewie Jew, who was without a question the most under-pressure coach going into the year, just shows how far they've come as a football club. I'm giving the Gold Coast Suns a B-. A lot of upside and promise, and I cannot wait to watch the Gold Coast Suns next year with Ben King. I had them finishing 16th at the start of the year, and they've completely blown away my expectations. Flag Suns, baby. Hell yeah. Now moving on to 11th, Port Adelaide. So at the start of the season, when I gave my ladder predictions, I said this. For me, the team I have sliding out of the top eight and missing finals is Port Adelaide. And I copped a lot of hate on social media for saying that. But just like the Collingwood call I did last year, they all laughed at me. But I have to say, they're not laughing now, are they? I successfully predicted that Port Adelaide would not play finals this year. By the time they were 0-5, I was already celebrating my successful prediction. And they were aggressively okay after that, but definitely not good enough to get themselves back into finals. Other than Connor Rosie, nothing really much happened at Port this year. And I do expect them to bounce back and make the 8 next year. But other than that, nothing really too much happened. D minus. Moving on. Oh boy, I can't wait to talk about St Kilda, guys. I'm going to talk about St Kilda. Let's go, baby. I love St Kilda. Oh yes, when the Saints go marching in. Woo, I love St Kilda. Kill me. Let's just get this over with. St Kilda are fine. At this point, even their fans are sick of them, which is really upsetting to be honest. I swear to God, I always have a spray for St. Kilda literally every single time I make an episode of this podcast. They've single-handedly ruined my tipping competition. And just like their fans, they continue to crush any hopes and dreams that I may have. Talking about them is futile, and I'm becoming more aggressive as this part keeps dragging on. Jake Sinclair and Callum Wilkie actually had really great seasons. And for the most part, Max King was really good, kicking 52 goals total for the season. And also, the Saints could be in a far worse position for a team in no man's land. But their inconsistency really just drives me insane. If they're able to fix that in 2023, I'd actually consider this season a complete success. Whether that's losing every single game and finishing at the bottom of the ladder, or doing the exact opposite, I'd consider this season a complete success. But as for now... Uh, see, moving on. And finally, the team finishing off this whole review... The Carlton Blues, who finished ninth. Me just imagining the suffering and agonizing pain the Blues fans are going through right now just brings me so much joy. 
All I wanted to see in 2022 was watch Carlton suffer. And thankfully, the Blues did that to their own fans this year. They started the season 8-2 and looked set to finish in the finals and possibly even in the top four. But Carlton managed to pull out a classic Blues blunder and lose the last four games of the season to finish just outside the top eight. Bicey aside, for a second, they had a really solid season and took a massive step in the right direction if they're looking to play finals. Plus, Charlie Curnow, after all the injuries he's had over the past few seasons, did win the Coleman medal, which should be a very inspiring story. Plus, literally everything about Sam Doherty was so heartwarming to see. Absolutely robbed of the most courageous player, by the way. But it's not just the fact that they missed finals despite being 8-2, it's the way they did it. Having two different players in two different teams destroy Carlton's hopes in the span of the last two rounds just brings me so much happiness. It makes all the therapy sessions I had after Jack Noon's Mark Murphy and Sam Walsh so much better. By C out of the way, I am going to give the Blues a season grade of B. But if I was allowed my buy C, I'd easily give them an F for the fact that they were in the top eight for literally every single week throughout the whole year, except the last round. That's such a Carlton thing to do, and I love how the club literally did that to their own fans. So, Charlie Kernow, thank you. Okay, that's the best question you can come up with after two hours of footy. You're quite brilliant, Shane. Yeah, terrific. We're going to end this week's episode by going through the You're Quite Brilliant Q&A. And we're going to start the first question from at underscore Azar underscore 30 underscore. How deep do you reckon Freo will go in September? Freo are the type of team that I wouldn't be surprised dropped out in the first week of finals or end up going through the whole way to the last Saturday of September. Our best footy, as we know by now, is capable of beating any side in the comp. It's just a matter of, are we capable of sustaining and playing that brand of footy? If we are, I'm actually pretty confident that Freo could actually end up winning the whole thing. But if we don't, we could get knocked out by a very competitive Bulldogs team. Next question from at underscore Jakey underscore Chun underscore. Are you nervous or excited or both and why? I definitely think I'm both. I'm really excited to see Freo play a final. I mean, this is the first final we've played since 2015. Like, how could I not be excited? But at the same time, I don't want us to lose to a team that doesn't deserve to be in the finals at our home ground. Because if we do go to the finals without winning a single game there, I feel like the season will be a disappointment. Considering how much we've done throughout the season so far, it would be kind of a letdown to know that despite us beating teams like Geelong, Melbourne and Brisbane, we've come all this way just to lose in the first week of finals. But honestly, I would be more than satisfied if we win a final. Unfortunately, I won't be there to watch it, but I mean the tickets were sold in literally less than five hours, so the crowd's going to be huge. So let's just hope Frio don't crack under pressure. Next question coming in from at Arza underscore 1506. How do we win against the dogs? I think from a strategy point of view, what we have to do is obviously we want to shut down their key forwards since they just have so many big targets and idolising those key forwards will be crucial when deciding the winner. But also, our midfield pressure will have to be switched on. The Dogs have always had a very strong handball game, especially through the middle. And as we saw last year in 2021, they're willing to adapt to finals by kicking more, recognising the value of gaining territory in a final. So to counter this, our pressure in the midfield and half-forward is going to be switched on. This is why Logue has to play half-forward if he does return to the side. 
He's such an athletic tall that can apply pressure when it's necessary. And with, you know, the added pressure of it being an elimination final, the pressure is certainly going to be on for both sides. But that pretty much plays exactly into the Dockers' hands because we're such a great team at applying pressure. But those first 20 to 30 minutes are going to be crucial since the pressure is the highest at that stage. But as we saw a few weeks ago, our high risk and pressure strategy worked brilliantly against the Dogs when it mattered. I've got no doubt that Luke Beveridge will make a slight tweak in his team's game plan when getting ready for this elimination final. But I think the Dockers, the added amount of pressure and a home crowd will just be too much for the Dogs. At Frankie Cesaro 48, top five Froyo players most vulnerable to being delisted. I think we're more likely to see five players in total, whether that's trading or being delisted, leave, rather than five being delisted. Specifically, that is. So I'll quickly name all the players I think that'll leave right now. I think Lob is definitely the most likely to leave via trade. This has been building up for well over three years now. And now that the dogs are probably going to pull out the race for Roy Lobb now with the emergence of Sam Darcy, that really just leaves Melbourne and St Kilda. I think at this rate, he's more likely to go to Melbourne since Freo have actually something to gain from Melbourne, aka Luke Jackson. Plus, not only is Lobb a decent replacement for Luke Jackson, but he actually fits the Melbourne forward line perfectly. So either way, everybody wins. We get Luke Jackson and Melbourne get the key forward they've been crying out for. Next to go is Connor Blakely, which at this rate is definitely going to be a delistment. He'll be out of contract at the conclusion of this season. He hasn't played a game all year, and he'll be 27 by the time 2023 rocks around. Plus, he'll ease up some salary cap, which will ease the landing of Luke Jackson. He's actually been somewhat decent in the waffle, and he's been consistently their best player throughout the year. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if he's picked up at another club after his delistment. I mean, he's going to finish in the top five for Peel Thunder's best and fairest. But even with that being said, this delistment is way overdue. At his best, he's a decent sub, but at his worst, he's taking up salary cap that could be used on someone else. So I'll be really surprised if Connor Blakely is still a docker by the time next year happens. There is a tiny rumour, hasn't spread around too much, about Bailey Banfield possibly leaving. Like I said, it's only a tiny rumour and it hasn't been confirmed or anything. But there are some tiny talks that he may possibly want to leave Freo, but I'm just going to leave that up for the rumours for now. Blake Akers is another one that I think might leave. Apparently, him and the football club are far off signing any contracts anytime soon. And Carlton, because of course it's Carlton, have interest in another decent midfielder. Apparently, the word that's been going around is that JL is lowering the money giving to Blake Akers since they're trying to free up space for Luke Jackson. But Blake Akers and his manager want a lot more money that was offered to them. Because of this, Blake Akers could join a third club if he's given the right money and the right amount of motivation to leave. But so far, that's only been confirmed by his manager. This one is no surprise since it was literally confirmed a few weeks ago, but David Mundy said that he was going to retire once Freo had knocked out of the finals. A lot of people think Griffin Logue might leave, but I just think that's so highly unlikely to happen. The reason this rumour even began was because Logue, who was a decent defender, wasn't getting the games he deserved. But now, he's playing every single week in a position that's crucial in our forward line. And not only that, but Logue himself has said that he's more than happy staying in WA. So honestly, you need to drop this rumour entirely. It's dead. And I'm just going to throw these two last up in the air for fun, but Mitch Croydon and Joel Weston. 
I will admit judging Joel Weston is a bit harsh considering this is probably his second or third year in the AFL. But Cronin has been here longer than enough, and the difference between Cronin and Blakely is that I actually like Mitch Cronin. Which actually transitions perfectly into the next question, sent in by Jack Zero underscore Gross. Who is your least favourite player from Freo, without a question, Connor Blakely? I mean, if it wasn't for him, Ed Langdon would still be at the Freo footy club. I think that's more than enough reasons to explain why I hate Connor Blakely so much. At MagWilliam05 asks, what are my thoughts on the All-Australian team? Honestly, it could have been far worse. Not that the actual team was bad, I'll get to that in a section, but the way it was presented was bad. I mean, the lady that announced the All-Australian team just sounded so bland and uninteresting in announcing so. Plus, any attempt at a funny moment during the interview by Jonathan Brown just fell flat. And, like, they used an image of Sam Taylor when announcing Connor Rosie and made the interchange for the All-Australian. Like, people, you had one job. Like, imagine being Connor Rosie and making your first All-Australian and being so proud of yourself and all the hard work you've put in just for the AFL to use a photo of a completely different player when announcing you. And plus, who asked for the All-Australian umpires? Who sat at the selection table when organising this team and went, oh yes, we should add the umpires to the All-Australian team? At this point, why isn't there an All-Australian spot for the coach of the year? Why isn't there an All-Australian spot for the runner of the year? You could have even added an All-Australian spot for the many sub just to make Rory Laird happy. Hell, why not put it in an All-Australian commentator booth in there and put Kelly Underwood in it? Like, it's so unnecessary, and literally no one else asked for it. It's one of the most confusing decisions I've ever seen the AFL make on awards night. And also, like, I love Liam Baker, but come on, Sam Doherty deserved the AFL's most courageous award. And also, James Sicily was literally the number one rated defender in the entire competition that year, and did not make the All-Australian team. Like, seriously, what the hell, Kane Corns? And also, like, the whole discussion about Tom Hawkins being captain, or him even getting the All-Australian spot in the first place. Tom Lynch did kick more goals than Hawkins, but, I mean, there's literally one goal separating each other. But, at the same time, Lynch did miss far more games and had far more dominant performances than Hawkins. But I think the part that really made us AFL fans frustrated over Hawkins getting the spot is that three out of the six spots in the forward line were all Geelong players. Like, don't get me wrong, they definitely all deserved their spots, but I think the majority of cats in that forward line made it frustrating. But once the show was over and I thought about it, yeah, Hawkins making the All-Australian team does definitely make a lot of sense. Because even if Hawkins is behind Lynch on goals, Hawkins leads the competition for score involvements and is ranked second overall for goal assists. So in retrospect, I could definitely see him making the spot over Lynch. But the really confusing part was the decision to make him captain of the team. Statistically, it makes sense, because like I just said, he leads the competition in score involvements and is ranked second for goal assists. But at the same time, it's such a head-scratching decision, because he's not even a captain. Hell, he's not even a part of Geelong's leadership group. He literally said that himself mere seconds after being selected as captain. So even he was aware of just how weird of a decision that was. Patrick Cripps was selected as the vice-captain, which makes perfect sense. He's the captain of a team that just missed finals on percentage. Plus, at the start of the year, he was the best player in the competition. 
So for once, the selectors of the All-Australian team actually made a logical decision. But looking at the team, literally anybody else could have made a better captain than Tom Hawkins. You've got Max Gorn, who is the captain of the Melbourne Footy Club and was the All-Australian captain last year. You've got Keller Mills, who, if I'm not mistaken, actually captained a Swans game this year. Took Miller, who is the captain of the Gold Coast Suns, and who knows, could actually probably win the Brownlow. We'll get to that later. Stephen May, who is a major leader of the Melbourne Footy Club. Hell, even Tom Stewart, Hawkins' teammate, would have made a better decision as captain, since, you know, he's actually a part of Geelong's leadership group. Look, I don't know, man. It's such a weird decision. If I was to ask the selectors of the All-Australian team anything, it would be the decision to make Tom Hawkins captain. And while I'm at the All-Australian team, I may as well answer this question from at Joefis underscore, who asks, what would you rank the All-Australian team out of 10? Honestly, compared to the last few years, especially 2020 in mind, this is a perfectly harmless All-Australian team. To be honest, there were only two players I felt were absolutely robbed of the All-Australian spot, and that being James Sicily, Sam Doherty, and maybe Rory Laird. I say maybe because he had such an amazing season that he definitely deserves a spot in the team, but at the same time, I couldn't see him passing anyone like Andrew Brayshaw or Connor Rosie. Like I said, if the All-Australian had a many sub, Roy Led absolutely deserves to be there. But Sicily and Doherty aside, they pretty much nailed every spot when making this team. I'm a little bit disappointed over the fact that we didn't get actual wingers in the All-Australian team. They said last year they want to give the winger spot to actual wingers. But Took Miller only spent like 2% of game time on the wings, so yeah, that really doesn't add up. But other than that, they pretty much perfectly nailed every other spot in the team. It was a little strange seeing Andrew Brayshaw win the AFL-PA MVP and then not even get in the starting midfield. But at the same time, Matt Prittis won the Brownlow in 2014 and didn't even make the All-Australian, so I don't know what to believe anymore. I'll give it a solid 7.5 out of 10. Could have been better, but at the same time, could have been a lot more worse. Next question from Matt underscore McNarka. Does the AFL-PA MVP increase Brayshaw's chances of winning the Brownlow? it definitely does create a bit more optimism around him winning it. I personally think he will win the Brownlow, but four out of the last six AFLPA MVP winners have eventually gone on to win the Brownlow in the same year. So that does create a lot more certainty. At Timothy Melrose asks, will Nat Fife lift for finals? 100%. I back Nat Fife to play his best footy by the time the finals rock around. I mean, we're talking about a guy that played in a preliminary final against one of the best teams that we've seen in this century with a broken leg. Like, this will be the biggest game Nat Fife has played in since that game in 2015. And as the captain going into his first final series as said captain, he'll have a different sense of motivation that he hasn't really had before in his career. But hopefully he manages to go through this game without any sort of injuries. And finally, multiple people asked this question, so rather than name them all, I'd rather just answer the question at once. Do I think Brayshaw will win the Brownlow, and if not so, who? Like I said, I personally believe Brayshaw will win the Brownlow, biasy and unbiasy aside. But if he didn't win it, I would absolutely love to see someone like a Took Miller win it. Especially since Took Miller actually won the Brownlow predictor in AFL.com. I just don't want to see someone like a Lockie Neal win a second, considering we've already seen him win a Brownlow. Plus, Lockie Neal winning a second kind of ruins the accomplishment of Nat Fife winning a second one. Like, don't get me wrong, I actually love Lockie Neal, I still do to this day. 
But I really just don't want him winning a second Brownlow, is all I'm saying. But Brayshaw definitely deserves to win it because he has been, in my mind, the best player in the competition. And that is going to wrap up this week's long episode. It's going to be a very exciting couple of weeks, seeing the Dockers in September for the first time in seven years. It's been long overdue, and hopefully by the end of the season, we'll be able to lift that cup in purple. But for now, don't forget the second wave of merch is coming out. September 1st, which is the Thursday next week at 4 o'clock WA time. But if you want to get yourself some sick merch now, head to redbubble.com slash people slash big digs slash shop. This is Deegan signing out, and you have been listening to the Big Digs podcast. It's a win that changes everything for the Dodgers.